0: So, Michael, do you think we should talk about Drake this episode, you know, being a famous Canadian Jew who's been all over the news the past week? If you want to. I mean, I want to. Do you think we could shoehorn it <laughs> in? Do, do Jews need to worry about it? Is there a Jewish think... factor here, or am I just what, trying to? What, what's
1: on your mind? Well, the Raptors are in the finals. Do you just want to talk about I, the Raptors? I just want to talk about the Raptors. Okay, we can devote a little, <laughs> we can carve out a little space and step on the Metromers toes uh, <laughs> and talk about the Raptors.
0: Yeah. Or Drake. People are saying he's, he's being too loud and proud and... Uh, I don't know. It it doesn't seem to have any Jewish undertones that I can think of, but what if it did? (laughs) Then we could talk about it more. I'm just really excited. The first games tonight, by the time you're listening to this, the Raptors will already have won. You heard it here first. Uh, I just wanted to say that first before we started. So let's go raps.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. My name is
0: Michael Freeman. I'm Alex Rose, and I seem to have gotten your cold from last episode. Oh!
1: (laughs) Lee. Uh, Today we're going (laughs) to... I'm just going to blow right past that. Today we are talking about three stories. We're going to be chatting about uh, a court case that is unfolding right now over whether wines made in the West Bank are legally able to be labeled products of Israel.
0: Next, we're going to talk about your cover story, Michael, from this week about the peak age of Jewish television, and with all this streaming services that have come up, how they allowed Jewish
1: showrunners to explore their Jewishness. Finally, we're going to be asking, do Jews really need to worry about the historical roast of Anne Frank? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you heard that right. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, you soon will, and you'll be glad we brought it to your attention. So to start things off, uh, we brought in Ron Sileg veteran reporter here at the Canadian Jewish News. Podcast listeners may remember him from our very first episode, way back
2: in the day. Oh, it was days and days ago. (laughs) Some might even say months. Um, Ron, it's great to have you back. Good to be back and and, uh, back from the pioneering days of radio when we cupped one ear. (laughs) That was several weeks ago. Good to be back.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, time moves quickly in in the world of Mm -hmm. audio. Uh, So we're here, we brought you on because you wrote a a story about a kind of complex issue that's unfolding right now in federal court in Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very unique Canadian Jewish issue and it's about uh, whether a, a wine that, or two wines rather, that were made in s- Jewish settlements in the West Bank can be labeled products of Israel. Right. Uh, so I'm kind of curious as to how this whole thing began. Because it began a few
2: years ago, right? It began a few years ago when uh, a, a Winnipeg uh, pro Palestinian human rights activist, uh, whose filings uh, clearly state that he's Jewish and the child of Holocaust survivors, uh, began a campaign looking for i think in my opinion a little mischievously maybe looking for wines that uh, uh, were made in the west bank and labeled as product of israel couldn't find any in manitoba or winnipeg found two wines in uh on on store shelves of the ontario liquid control board the lcbo uh, the lcbo so that was a few years ago he wrote to the lcbo saying listen Uh, Canada doesn't recognize the West Bank, nobody recognizes the West Bank as part of Israel. Even Israel doesn't recognize the West Bank as part of Israel, so you shouldn't be labeling these wines or shouldn't be allowing them into Canada as product of Israel. He didn't hear back from the LCBO, so he went to a government agency instead called the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, which took its time but eventually agreed with him and said, you're right, these wines are not technically made in Israel, they shouldn't be labeled as product of Israel. And they um, uh, said as much and instructed the LCBO to pull the wines from the shelves. There weren't that many. The LCBO, in turn, instructed its vendors to stop importing the wine until further notice. I just need that. You said there weren't that many. Like, are these these are fairly small wineries? These are fairly small wineries. Um, one is the Pisagot Winery. This is north, northeast of Jerusalem in the Judean Hills. The other is the Shiloh Winery, which is uh, in a West Bank settlement near the town of Ariel. None of these, none of these, uh, you know, Israel now has something like 300 artisanal wineries. Uh, they don't produce that much wine, and even what they export isn't very much, but you know, here they were on the shelves of the Ontario Liquor Control Board. So the Ontario Liquor Control Board and the, the Food and Drug Agency, uh, or the, uh, uh, the agency in charge, agrees with Kattenberg, says you gotta get rid of the wines. Of course, all hell breaks loose among Jewish agencies and the very next day the agency reverses itself and says we acted too rashly and we didn't consider certain parts of the Canada-Israel Free Trade Agreement which trump all these other agreements and go ahead and the wines can be imported and sold labeled. Which
1: sounds to me like they just
2: didn't consider the
1: the public outcry that would happen.
2: They did definitely did not consider the public outcry. The public outcry was massive and the court noted it and the court said even social media played a role in forcing this agency to reverse itself. The public outcry was great. All the Jewish agencies piled on and the Israeli embassy even had a voice in this. We're not quite sure what it was but I'm sure it was supportive of their their wineries. so the agency reverses itself. Uh, Kattenberg then launches an appeal of the reversal within a sort of appeal body that's within the agency itself. All these federal agencies have these tiny little appeal bodies where if you don't like a decision, you can appeal it.
1: Sorry, Kattenberg is, is the guy from Winnipeg? Kattenberg who...
2: is the complainant, is the applicant in this case. What,
1: what, what's he getting out of this?
2: Well, we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. <laughs> I just want to lay out the facts of the case. Sure. Um, so he appeals the reversal and an appeals body upholds the reversal. This took several months, but the appeals body says, yes, the agency was right to reverse itself. He's now in federal court seeking a judicial review of the decision that upheld the reversal. So it's a little technical and it's a little narrow, but the case inevitably, of course, spilled over into Israeli policy, Canadian policy, international policy, uh, who runs the West Bank? Is it really occupied? Are the Jewish settlements illegal? Mm-hmm. Uh, all you kinds know. of, all kinds of interesting spillage, if you will, mm-hmm. over into um, uh, international law and how international law informs Canadian law. Now, there's no Canadian law uh, with respect to the West Bank. It's just very long-standing Canadian policy. Canadian policy is very clear. It does not recognize what they call permanent Israeli control over territories occupied. Uh, after the 1967 war. That includes the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, which nobody talks about anymore, is sort of occupied territory, okay. and even Gaza. Even Gaza, for some reason, is part of Canadian policy, even though Israel quit Gaza in, I believe, 2005. So that's where we're at. So the court had a day and a half of hearings in which the government tried to keep things very, very narrow and said Jewish settlements have nothing to do with this. West Bank has nothing to do with this. All this has to do with is this very narrow decision that the the Katzenberg is now trying to overturn.
1: I, I like that this is basically not a microcosm, but sort of like one way of looking at why nobody likes talking about Israel-Palestine. Because right. you can ask one question, and you will never just get one answer to that one question. It's right. it's you can't just tackle one aspect of it without talking about the whole friggin' thing.
2: Right. Well, that was the point of uh, of of the other side, in in which they said, look, it's impossible to look at this narrow decision without looking at policy and when you look at policy you look at why that policy exists and you look at israel's Mm. policies and then you have to go back and talk about is the west bank uh, occupied are settlements illegal and uh, the next thing (laughs) you know yeah the, the next thing you know you're not talking about a silly little label that can be changed at its source just as easily as product of canada is printed on a label product of whatever you want, can also be printed on the label. What do the wineries themselves think about this? Um, Well, that's interesting. I I sent an email to the Pisagot winery. Here's the response from Eli. He says his wines are sold in about a dozen countries, including Europe, and all of them state product of Israel. So I'm wondering if the EU rules are simply not enforced or this little winery in Israel is flying under the radar. Hmm. Uh, in any event, he didn't respond to my follow-up query on whether the wines would still be available in Canada if the labels would be forced to change. I sort of doubt it. It's, it's not a big deal for – and I've, I've been to quite a few wineries in, in and around Israel, and they have several different uh, labeling requirements depending on market. Some of them say, you know, uh, pregnant women should not drink this product. Some of them say, you know, drinking this product in excess will lead to. Uh, okay, They're, every country has its own rules about labeling. So for them to slap a, a, label on saying product of the West Bank would not be, you know, technically very demanding for them. They could do it. All of this comes down to a lot of you know symbolism, and toing and froing about Canadian policy and of course about Israel. Uh, you want to be, you want to drop a stink bomb at a party, just say Israel.
0: So why do people care? I mean, here in Canada, for example, B'nai B'rith was granted intervener status. Is that right? So yeah. why and, is it but, important to them?
2: Well, first of all, uh, we should know that at first, Independent Jewish Voices, which is a pro-BDS group, did win intervener status. Mm-hmm. B'nai B'rith applied for intervener status and was denied. It appealed that decision. And then really, at the last second, they were granted intervener status. What do what, what, what the Canadian, I think
1: maybe we're asking is what are the Canadians, mm-hmm. what does any Canadian get out of this? Aside from a symbolic victory over the other side. Yeah, it's a symbolic victory.
2: Look, uh, part of what uh, Independent Jewish Voices argued is freedom of conscience. Canadians have a right to know where their products are from. Mm. So if you look at a label, uh, and they cited all kinds of things, GMO labeling, for one. Uh, Is the product organic or not organic? Doesn't contain polyunsaturated I don't know what's. So labeling products have to be very clear and very honest, and they've gotten more so over the years. As certain things are introduced, you know, whether they're real or not, about gluten and <laughs> all kinds of things. The definition so in that, of organic et cetera, yeah, yeah. and the definition of organic, and that's controversial too. So the argument is that Canadians have a right as a matter of conscience to know what they're buying and where it's from. Does it matter to what the court referred to as the average consumer? Probably not, because what the court acknowledged if, is, if you're pro-BDS and you don't like Israel, you're not drinking wine that's from Israel mm-hmm. and you're not drinking wine that's from the settlements for sure. Hmm. So um, is this a big deal? On one hand, it sounded like a big deal because it sounded like uh, a UN resolution was being debated in a Toronto courtroom. But ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, this is about one label that could easily be swapped out in the interest of symbolism and what the other side called truth in advertising. So I want to ask again then, I asked before, who is this guy? Who's the guy who
1: started all this and why is he still doing it? Because he must be spending his own money for something that gives him nothing. No, no,
2: he's being represented pro bono by Dimitri Laskaris. Dimitri, as readers of the CJN might know, is a prominent uh, pro-Palestinian activist, very vocal. He's the lawyer to the Al-Quds Day rally. Uh, He's been presenting arguments before Toronto City Council on why the Al-Quds Day rally not only is not hateful, but has also been addressed by prominent Jewish uh, figures. He was also kicked out of the Green Party, by the way, for being too anti-Israel, and that's an achievement. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, and so um, I I don't think he's charging for it. What does Kattenberg get out out of it? Kattenberg describes himself as an Enophile, Uh, as I said, as a child of Holocaust survivors, and what that has to do with anything I'm not sure of, but I'm mildly offended by that. And as someone who's um, just really... Interested in doing the right thing as as far as he sees it, Um, you know, the West Bank isn't part of Israel. This product should not be labeled as product of Israel. So, do you have a sense of what the decision will ultimately be? The judge didn't really tip her hand too much. She wanted to know from the government, um, really, how do I know? Standing in the liquor store, I'm holding a bottle of wine. How do I really know where it's from? And she raised the issue of wines made in California. Well, how come? The wine I like is made in California. It doesn't say made in the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, because, said the other side, everyone knows where California is. Does everyone know where the West Bank is? Yes, no. So there was a, mm-hmm. a, a little bit of that. What the judge, I think, will ultimately say is, look, Kattenberg, Lascaris, you might be right. You might, it might be the case that Canadian policy should be consistent across all stratums of government and society. So the government can't say we don't recognize the West Bank and we won't until Israel and the Palestinians settle this business. So every government agency should make sure that products of Israel are made in Israel. They're not made in Israel. They should be labeled as products of the West Bank. There were other suggestions, products of the occupied Palestinian territories, which is terribly political, and other sort of you know uh, suggestions. But I think ultimately the way she'll go is She's going to dismiss this and say, all of you just go home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was a minor decision by a minor body. Nobody's ever heard of it. Nobody even knows it exists. And so I'm not, I'm not upsetting this much stuff for one tiny little decision. Is there
1: even a precedent for this sort of thing? I, I not can't think in, no, of.
2: I'm not sure. There's, there's olive oil and there are other products. Um, so the United Church has a long, long list of products that are made in the West Bank that you should boycott. So some of them involve, I don't know, plastic lawn chairs. There's not much manufacturing going on in the West Bank, but what little there is <clears throat> doesn't, doesn't amount to a whole lot, no. So what do we get out of this? Um, buyer beware and consumer beware. If you're not sure that a wine is, is made in the West Bank or not, Google it on site and you'll find out. If you don't like it, you are free to put it back on the shelf. Mm. and grab some good old Ontario (laughs) plonk. So for those of you who
0: haven't read it yet, Michael just wrote an essay about what we call the end of peak Jewish TV. Jewish TV, as you define it, um, isn't just any show with a Jewish character or any show created by a Jewish person, but shows created by Jewish people where the Jewishness of the characters is at the forefront and integral to the characters in the show, right? Not just incidental.
1: Yeah, so... uh the the essay, it's a long essay, it's about 2,000 words. Um, it's basically the culmination of what I've been realizing I've been watching for the last decade, which is an unprecedented kind of flood of really openly Jewish television. So for a really long time, uh, at, 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 in, since the 1990s, since Seinfeld basically, there have been Jews on sitcoms pretty openly, right? friends and, and will and grace and and uh uh the clueless or the nanny or all the sort of shows um and a lot of that was kind of a more tokenism jew right like you don't really need to be jewish uh in order to to be uh whatever monica geller mm-hmm. uh but she is so whatever like it's nice it's fine it's more like a box to check though yeah i mean there weren't that many boxes that they were checking (laughs) as far as racial diversity went in the 1990s and sitcoms. But as far as like, oh, here's a different kind of white person we can have. (laughs) Yeah, that was the 1990s sitcoms. As opposed to the last decade, the 2010s have seen a a true flood of fantastic uh, television that is made, like you said said in in that intro just now, uh, by Jews and starring, not necessarily starring Jews, but starring openly Jewish characters. So the main character is something. To, so, so you have shows like Broad City, you have shows like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Transparent, Man-Seeking Woman, uh, Shits Creek, The Kaminsky Method. Like when you actually look at the full list, um, it goes on for a while. What was kind of your conclusion about
0: what allowed this golden age to rise?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of the uh, culmination of, of a few different things. One, it's that one of the the main groups, anyway, is uh, millennials, and a lot of their shows tend to be about uh, millennial Jews who live in New York and are self absorbed, and so you have shows like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, A Broad City, and 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 all these sort of shows that are very self reflective. I think part of that is because uh, a lot of these people, people our age, in their in their well, in the, in, in the 2010s, would be in like late 20s to early 30s, would have grown up watching shows like Seinfeld and had that influence them. So there's something of a coming of age story there of a generation of millennials who are now becoming creators. It coincided in the 2010s with Netflix and the rise of streaming platforms. And so you see this whole other wave of niche shows. And I should note that almost none of the shows that I'm talking about are broad mainstream cable shows, right? I'm not talking about the Big Bang Theory, where there is a token Jew and a really horribly written, unfunny, retrograde stereotype jewish mother mm-hmm. character or even brooklyn 99 another network show with yeah. an
0: openly jewish main character
1: yeah i mean you know they mention a bar mitzvah every once in a while but jake peralta doesn't really have to be jewish in fact his name is peralta he may have been italian initially i don't know they may have changed directions uh, i'm not sure schmidt is another really good character in, in new girl because uh, he's actually very funny but his Judaism is is just kind of a thing to have as a punchline once an episode to sort of remind everybody about racial diversity. Almost, it's 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 not it's not quite the same. Um, in other words, if if you replaced all those Jewish jokes with Greek or Italian mm-hmm. jokes the character would still be pretty much the same character, mm-hmm. right? The Judaism it just is, happens to be, like you said, a different type of white person. It's incidental. So there's the rise of streaming platforms, and there's the coming of age of millennials. And those two things kind of coincided with what's now cool, which is to be different and to embrace your culture, right? Uh, and And this is not by any means unique to Jews, because you've got Kim's Convenience and Fresh Off the Boat. And there's blackish Atlanta. Right. All kinds of cable shows. Black Panther. And you know, you have a rise of African American culture, cross-pop culture, but just to keep it with TV, you do see a lot of shows on Netflix and Amazon catering to, to more niche audiences, as they should. Because when you create a fragmented viewing environment, you don't have to create the Brady Bunch where everybody in America is watching it at a single night Mm -hmm. and and it it, you know it has to cater to to the the broadest possible audience you're allowed to say hey i'm just gonna make this one for the jews Mm -hmm. i'm just gonna make this one for black americans i'm just gonna make this one for asian americans like you're allowed to 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 target and to go in a little bit deeper i
0: don't you not even are you allowed to but you're encouraged to because Mm.
1: with so many shows
0: you know before it was a strength to be broad and universal Um, but now That could be seen as a weakness instead of like everybody kind of being able to relate to it. If there are shows that so many shows that there's always something you can really relate to, it's a strength to make it relatable to a smaller group of people
1: than somewhat relatable to a larger group of people. Right. And the ratings are lower. Like the Big Bang Theory still had a huge uh, uh, finale. Fine, because it's still very popular. Mm -hmm. But if you want a better show, (laughs) I would argue you can watch any other Jewish show uh, around right now or that ended. So that's the other thing, right? The reason I wrote this article now is because this year in 2019, three of the shows uh, are ending. Three of the most Jewish shows. Transparent, Broad City, Crazy Mm Ex-Girlfriend. Those are some of the most Jewish shows that have ever existed. They're also all fantastic shows. um, And this year is the end. And so we're kind of reaching the end of this crest, which is very sad. And I worry that these creators' next projects will not be... As Jewish. I guess saying worry is a bit silly. Do you think Jews need to worry about that, Michael? (laughs) (laughs) They don't need to worry about it. Like no writer, creator of any sort has any obligation to to cater to their (laughs) religious background. Don't get me wrong. But it was nice. It was nice to watch openly Jewish characters.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say I don't I think Jews have been probably especially overrepresented in the last little bit i, I don't know that's probably become true. underrepresented but i agree it is nice and you don't even start watching those shows necessarily for their jewishness but it is cool like like the birthright episode of broad city um i only saw the first well, they season all start chanting Jews, yeah. jews <laughs> jews <laughs> on the plane but i also think like the the jewishness in broad city uh probably appeals to the kind of people who'd be watching that show where the kind of people who might go on birthright and be like I'm not Jewish like these people are Jewish. Like, I feel kind of out of place here. Uh, but Judaism is still important to me. But it, it's nice to probably see, like, the more complicated relationship with Judaism on, if not mainstream TV at least, uh, right next to it. And even, like, like Jamie, one of the co-hosts of the Menchwarmers at our uh, bonfire this past weekend called the most recent episode of Transparent confusingly Jewish in the sense that, like... there's an episode? Sorry, this, this most recent season... The when they go to the Western Wall. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, he called it confusingly Jewish in the sense that like, if you're not Jewish, you probably have no idea what's going on. <laughs> um, I haven't seen it. Um, I don't have an Amazon subscription. I got a free trial for a month to watch the first season of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I did that I think like three or four years ago to watch the first season of Transparent. But uh, but yeah, you get, but you get it where you can. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you may as well just download it at that point. Like, who are you kidding? Yeah. Um, not that I endorse download. <laughs> That's true.
0: Um, it's more just, it's less work to watch shows that are on streaming services I'm already paying
1: for. For sure. The, it's the, not even like a moral argument. I'm just that lazy. The the important thing uh, in all of these shows' cases, the things that make them good is that it's not just that they're Jewish. They're not just Jewish shows. So you have a show like Broad City, which is embraced by millennials all over the place, particularly millennial women, I would say, more than millennial Jews. I think if you're a 30-year-old woman, you're more likely to know and love Broad City than if you're a 30-year-old Jewish guy. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it... it Although it, I do know a lot of, like, Jewish guys around my age who really like the show, too. Of course, because it's a great show. Yeah. But, but <laughs> I just mean it's it's universality, yeah. I think. Uh, a, a, and, and this is quite literally represented in... I don't know if you watched the end of the show. Not yet. But in the last episode, this is not really a spoiler alert, but there's a, a broad, panning-out shot... Uh, of different couples of women walking and having conversations exactly like Abby and Alana, the main characters, mm-hmm. and you have you know t- an, an Asian friend and a, a a brown skin friend and two black girls and yeah, yeah and like it's just it's it's supposed to say like you know the it's saying something about the universality of, of female mm-hmm. friendship and and the importance of it and and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that like this in other words, this was just Broad City was just the story of two Jewish best friends, mm-hmm. but. It's not about Jews. It's just telling their story, mm-hmm. and which is part of what makes it great.
0: Well, at the end of the essay, you say it could be another 20 or 30 years before we see another moment like this. What makes you think that? So part of the reason is
1: I, I suspect, this is a hypothesis. I could be wrong, but I would suspect that most of these creators, especially the younger ones, having gotten the Jewish story out of their system, will move on to different things. And you see this kind of trajectory in a showrunner like Jenji Cohen, whose big breakthrough show years and years ago was Weeds. I believe there was a rabbi character who was pretty central to, to the show, um, and it dealt with with Judaism and, and contemporary Judaism in a, in a slightly more uh, overt way than her subsequent show, which was Orange is the New Black, which still had a Jewish character of sorts. <laughs> she, she didn't start Jewish. She converts to Judaism, and there's some very touching scenes, and it's a great little arc, but it is a fairly minor arc in the overall show. The next series that she oversaw was Glow, which is barely Jewish at all. There's in fact one episode that kind that deals with a Jewish character. Yeah. yeah, well,
0: my sister's name is Melanie Rose, which is the name of the Jewish character in the show. Um
1: in Glow? Yeah. Who's the Jewish character in the show? Melrose.
0: Maybe you're thinking of a different one.
1: I was just thinking of the episode where where um, the lead uh, character, Alison Brie, goes uh, to like a Russian wedding to learn about what Russians are actually like to, to create her character.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, well, her name's actually Melanie Rosenberg or Rosenstein or
1: something like that, but uh. she goes by Melrose because she doesn't want to be immediately identified as Jewish. Yeah, that's funny. Well, it, it's so well hidden that they don't really talk <laughs> about it in the yeah. show that much. I didn't even know that. I was thinking about the Russian uh, connection there. Um, but it just goes to show you that there's this sort of progression downward of Jenji Cohen. Like, she... Gigi Cohen herself is, is Jewish. Um, you can see the trajectory of her shows when the role of Judaism gets smaller and smaller with each subsequent show. And I suspect that kind of thing will remain true of other showrunners. Um, you see other showrunners uh, like Simon Rich, who did Man Seeking Woman, which started a Jewish character. His next show, Miracle Workers, which is hysterical, by the way. It, it's not at all Jewish. It, it's kind of vaguely religious, but it's not Jewish. Um, also, did you know Eric Andre was Jewish? I thought that out recently. But yeah. I, no, I think he... Eric Andre's kind of a weird dude. I think he actually identifies as like um, some sort of vague spiritual plain kind of I don't know what he identifies as now yeah but he he was raised Jewish yeah you know he did all the Jewish stuff growing up yeah, yeah it's his mom who's Jewish and his dad is black so yeah I mean, uh I mean it makes it makes his hair make a lot more sense <laughs> but yeah but so yes you've got shows, or, or Lena Dunham's another example you know girls had a number of Jewish characters uh in it and her next show was not very Jewish Jill Soloway did a similar thing after Transparent like it I feel like there. are is a natural expectation that you're going to challenge yourself as a a writer. And you don't necessarily want to tread over the same ground by telling more Jewish stories because you want to branch out and you want to challenge yourself. And that's fair. So I would be surprised. I I would expect the next generation of showrunners to need to creep up uh, in order for us to see another kind of Jewish renaissance, particularly among people in their 20s and 30s, who who will be giving us some, some interesting new content down the line. Speaking of interesting new content,
0: <laughs> how about this new uh, historical... You're, you're speaking <laughs> abnormally loudly
1: now because you were so excited about that segue.
0: Nothing gets a, a podcaster going like a organic segue. But, <laughs> but now that we've talked about it, it seems pretty inorganic. <laughs> um, speaking of interesting new content... No, I'm
1: going to leave all that in. You don't need to keep saying it. <laughs>
0: speaking of... Okay, I'm done now. Yeah, so... This new Netflix show, Historical Roast, which where uh, Roastmaster General Jeff Ross, who you may know from roasting, among other people, Donald Trump and James Franco, and he's just like the classic roaster. I don't know how he got that job, but he's Jewish. He's got this Netflix show called Historical Roast, where they roast Freddie Mercury, Abraham Lincoln, Cleopatra, Martin Luther King Jr., and... Anne Frank. So this has gone over about as well as you might expect and about as well as Jeff Ross expected when he said it would be the end of his career and he'd have to go into hiding. <laughs> that as was a good preface. Line. Yeah, that was a very
1: good line. I actually don't think it went over that badly. Yeah. I mean, we have one article on the Canadian Jewish News website right now. A lot of the anger does seem to be coming from the Netherlands, mm-hmm. uh, where Anne Frank did was did live in hiding. Um I haven't seen that much controversy. I didn't actually hear, I, I gotta be honest, I didn't hear about this one until this morning when you brought it to my attention, Alex. Can we say it's when we looked specifically for things to ask,
0: do Jews <laughs> need to worry about this? Or is that letting people see how the sausage is made a little too much? Coaster uh, sausage. Kosher, yeah, yeah, turkey uh, sausage.
1: So I, uh, so, so we, we just watched a little bit of the show. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, I do encourage you, if you have Netflix, just pop it open, uh, Historical Roast, you can click on the Anne Frank episode I think the introduction is quite tastefully done. Mm -hmm. Jeff Ross obviously knew this was going to be a sensitive subject. It's almost even a little touching. Like, he's an eloquent writer. Uh, There are no jokes for a little bit. You see the solemn nods in the audience as he's laying out the tragedy of the Holocaust and the Jews who died and and how hard it must have been for a young girl to live under these conditions and, and write this diary, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like because he's Jewish, and because he clearly, he starts it with that, right? He starts it with the seriousness. Uh, he gets a pass. You can tell their jokes. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's... And all the, all
0: the other comedians
1: in the roast are Jewish as well. That's right. You have, you have Gilbert Gottfried playing Hitler. <laughs> which is... Exactly what you would think. In is, short shorts and knee socks. Oh, God. And, uh, his, and his Gilbert Gottfried voice. Uh, John Lovitz playing FDR. It's, and and uh, I don't know Rachel Feinstein was that was that her name Yeah, I think so. Playing Anne Frank and playing someone Anne else playing Frank. Don Rickles. Yeah, that's right.
0: As as Jeff Ross says in his, in his introduction, they wanted to do someone from the World War II era, and they weren't going to do Hitler. They weren't going to do FDR. They weren't even going to do Churchill, um, because he says, "Who do I want to have the last laugh?" You know, we only roast the people we love or respect or something along those lines, and it brings me back to a few years ago justin bieber saw the anne frank house and he said something at the end like you know i wish that like if she was alive that she would have been a believer and people got mad at him because they're like oh you're so self-censored like how can you make it about you but the whole point is that she should have been a believer she should have been she was a fan of the stars of her era she was just a normal girl and she was murdered for who she was you know that's the tragedy of the holocaust
1: i don't know if i agree about that i i would not give uh the beebs that much credit <laughs> for understanding the socio-historical ramifications okay. of a stupid comment he made uh, but maybe I take he your point. maybe he didn't mean
0: it like that but it is true that like she she should have been sure uh and like this is maybe a little bit further maybe she wouldn't have wanted to be the subject of a roast but it is meant to be like a sign of respect from Jewish comedians There's no question and no. and they talk about you know, there's still um, genocides going on to this day, one. And, and they talk about, like, the history of it. It's a way to, for people to actually learn about the story of Anne Frank and think about it. It's not meant to just make fun of her. It's meant to get people thinking and, and learning about it.
1: I will also say um, a roast is, by definition, a celebration. You are celebrating this person with, with comedy uh, and with love and with laughs. Mm-hmm. And the form that it takes is insults, but it's mm-hmm. just insult comedy. Like you you can't take them at face value. And mm-hmm. if you do, you are literally misunderstanding it, and mm-hmm. it's your fault. <laughs> and nobody owes you an explanation. You just don't get it. That's my opinion about this kind of comedy. Um you, you, if you're offended, you're just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can be offended, but that doesn't mean that the that you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I mean. And in this case in particular, that's that's my just my opinion about insult comedy in general. Mm. Um specifically on this one if you look if you actually watch it particularly if you watch hitler stuff a lot okay so first of all the fact that they cast gilbert Gottfried yeah. is in and of it like that should tell you something it's in and of itself mocking hitler moreover Gottfried spends we didn't watch his entire segment i i, I should admit i'm speaking a bit out of turn here but we watched what maybe five minutes of, of hitler hey math, yeah more than half of it if not at least half of it was Gilbert Godfrey making jokes about Hitler. This
0: isn't a bunch of Germans making fun of yeah. Anne Frank. This is a bunch of Jews who understand the legacy of the Holocaust and who grew up with it the way that we all have, mm. who are, you know, trying to show respect in the way that they in the way that they know. You know, it's like if you look at the intention and the people making it, I don't, Jews don't have to worry about this. Jews yeah. should celebrate this.
1: It's not just the way that they know, too. It's, it's it's they're speaking the language of people who may not know about it. Right. That mm-hmm. the, It actually raises an interesting point. There's a lot of discussion these days about Holocaust education. How do you keep it going? How do you make it interesting? How do you connect with younger audiences? Mm-hmm. Right. There was a story a few weeks ago. It was a really interesting thing. Um, do you hear about this Instagram stories of the Holocaust? It was like no, uh, uh I think it was for Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh somebody created an Instagram account for a 13 year old girl in the concentration camps so living in the Holocaust, and like for 24 hours she was like updating stories. Oh wow. Like like they were in costume. There was like a little sepia tinge or something, and like they were updating like stories for twenty four hours on Holocaust Remembrance Day about like life, it, like her life and like I don't know if it was in Auschwitz or, or or something like that, but it was, like, kind of harrowing because you know this girl. I think it might have been based on a real girl oh, who, who did die died. or right. something like that. Um, but it was a really innovative idea. And, like, a stro- I think it's a stroke of genius mm-hmm. if you want to connect with a generation who is increasingly never going to meet a Holocaust survivor because many of them Make are... Make it as real are, for are, them as possible yeah. Yeah, in
0: the way that they experience the world.
1: So I think this... Uh, is is frankly as good a piece of Holocaust education as Netflix is going to get. Mm-hmm. Certainly more than the Netflix documentaries on the Holocaust. Which, Five thousand documentaries about Hitler. Is. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, frankly, the kids aren't going to watch them. Right. But they'll watch this. Yeah. And maybe they'll learn something. Yeah, if
0: they're listening, they will because they go through her whole story. Um, and again, as Jeff Ross said, as Jews, if we don't laugh, we cry. If we don't eat, we also cry. But. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there's still the pain of the Holocaust and there are different ways to deal with it. And this is an acceptable and appropriate way. And, you know, that's what we've always done. We've always found the humor in the darkest things as as Jews. That's what part of what we're known for. One of the number one things that when Pew did the survey of Jews and they say, what does it mean to you to be Jewish? Um, One of the very top things was having a sense of humor. So, you know, I'm not going to worry about that. Doesn't sound like you are either. No, but the Dutch, on the other hand, they have no sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Well, that's our episode for this week. Thanks for tuning in. And if you do check out the Anne Frank Historical Roast, let us know what you think. Let us know if you think it's something Jews should worry about.
1: Mm -hmm. You can let us know in the comments, uh, or you can leave us a review. We would love if you left left us a review on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, Subscribe to us, leave us a review, let us know
0: your thoughts. So yeah, as always, this episode was hosted by myself, Alex Rose, and Michael Freeman, who's also the producer. And our intro music is by Vanya Zhuk, while our outro music is Lache Swing. And thanks again to Ron for joining us to talk about his wine article. If you want to read it or Michael's cover story, you can go to cjnews.com. Thanks
1: so much. We'll see you next time.